Welcome, everybody, to the Modern Day Overthinker Podcast. I am your host, Colin. Thank you for tuning in. Episode 36 is featuring a very special guest I didn't think I would get on. A entrepreneur slash politician slash activist slash pretty cool ass dude. Not going to lie. I enjoyed talking to him. He goes by the name of Spike Cohen. If you haven't heard of him, he was the 2020 VP candidate for the Libertarian Party. We talked a lot about addiction, a lot about addiction. And we also touched on his MS diagnosis and how that kind of changed the way he looks at life and the way he focuses on his life now, which is why he got into politics and why he's a very big voice in the Libertarian Party and the Liberty Movement, as he calls it. And yeah, he gave us a lot of information and a lot of things that he has done to help stay healthy mentally and physically. And I think people will really appreciate that. Of course, we had to talk about a couple political things, but I tried not to keep it super political. Obviously, this is a mental health podcast. So we touched on a couple things that everyone kind of understands and can agree with. We found some common ground. We talked about healthcare costs. And Spike went into great detail on why he believes they are so high. Definitely a view that not everyone has heard. And he also is doing a lot of work right now with holding government officials accountable. Which I personally think is important. Everybody should be held accountable. And uh, we touched on COVID lockdowns briefly at the end. Mainly because my buddy Dana had a question. Had to talk about that a little bit. Overall, I think everyone can enjoy and get something out of this episode. Regardless of where they land politically. Because we didn't really talk about politics a lot at all. We talked about just being people. Living life and trying to be the best versions of ourselves. And loving ourselves. And really taking care of ourselves so we can take care of others. If you're paying attention now. I really appreciate it, and I thank you, because I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and you're listening to this one, and I really appreciate that. So enjoy this episode with Spike Cohen. Welcome, everybody, to the Modern Day Overthinker podcast. Today's guest, tonight's guest, this morning's guest, whenever you're listening, is Spike Cohen. Welcome, Spike. Thanks for having me on, Colin. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. Uh, We wanted to talk about a variety of different things, but I like to start out the podcast by letting people introduce themselves and give a brief introduction, introduction on who you are, what you do. And kind of go from there. 
Sure. Uh, so my name is Spike Cohen. Uh, I was the Libertarian Party's vice presidential candidate in the last election in 2020. Uh, I am also the founder and chair of a nonprofit that I started called You Are the Power. Uh, and uh, and before that, I was sort of a serial entrepreneur and business owner. Um, so that's sort of the long and short of, of my background. And so you were doing a lot of, from what I've seen, web design or... Yes. So I started a, uh, when I was 16, uh, right before my 17th birthday, uh, I started a web design company and it started it just making websites for small businesses mm -hmm. in the Myrtle Beach area, which is where I live. Um, expanded that over time into a, a bigger and more successful business. Uh, started from that getting involved in more and more uh, startups uh, initially as the web designer for those startups. And yeah. then I started becoming kind of a silent partner, not so silent partner in some of them. And, uh, and that kind of parlayed in sort of a secondary type of business. Um, and after I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I decided to retire from all of that and kind of put all of my time full time into trying to grow the Liberty movement, uh, which is where my real passion truly was. Um, and so that's what I've been doing pretty much since, uh, about 2018 the past four years now. So, so was it mainly the diagnosis there? Are, there had to have been a couple other factors there where you're like, this is, or you kind of had, maybe you had it in the back of your mind and then you were just like, this is it. This is the time. So I, I had always, I had been a libertarian for many years yeah. before that, but I had always in my mind, it was, I'm going to make my money now. And I'm going to be very, very successful and make lots and lots of money. And then later on, when I retire, uh, it's a magic moment when I decide that I can retire, uh, then I might get into that stuff. But the reality is, if I had kept going the way I was going, I likely would not have made it much longer to retire. And so what happened was when I got the MS diagnosis, it actually wasn't that that changed everything. It was shortly after that when they sat me down and talked with me, the, the medical team, my, my, they call it your MS team, basically your, your neurologist and all these other doctors. Mm -hmm. And I, my neurologist sat me down and talked with me about my treatment options. So I, I take a monthly treatment that has been able to, thankfully, since 2017, keep me uh, in remission. Uh, I haven't gotten a single relapse since then. But when he was talking to me about That's these awesome. choices, he said, he said, no, it's, it's, a, it's a medical miracle and uh, it, it's incredible that, that it has worked as uh, successfully as it has. I've also made a lot of lifestyle choices that have been helpful too. But mm -hmm. so he's sitting me down and he's talking about my treatment options. And he says, you know, the thing is, uh, Spike, the, the purpose of the MS treatment is to slow down the rate of the progress of your MS, the progression of your MS, so that it's not much different than the typical aging process. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to make me feel better. That hit me like a ton of bricks because I, that hit me almost as hard. In fact, I would say long-term harder than the diagnosis itself. Because huh. when you're in your, at this point, I was in my early, I was what, 30, 16, I was 34. I, I, you know, so I was in my mid thirties. You know, you're in your teens, twenties, even into your thirties, you know that you're going to die. You know, you're going to get old, but you don't really think about it on a regular basis. It's sort of something yeah. you put off. I'm 32. I don't really think about it that regularly. Yeah. You, you don't think about it, man. When someone reminds you that whether or not you have MS, whether or not you have, you know, a disease, whether you're the most healthy person on earth, you will eventually, you are progressing your way to eventually getting older and more feeble and, you know, having physical problems and cognitive problems and getting worse and worse until you eventually die. And that it's not actually all that far away. It's, it's, you know, 
40, 50 years out, maybe more, but it's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's not like that's a thing that's not going to happen. That is going to happen. And so that hit me in a way that it probably never could have hit me before. I was already sort of in that vulnerable place of worrying about my life, worrying about my health. And when he said, yeah, we're going to get you to the point where you're just going to go back to typical aging and dying, that basically in that moment shifted my entire mindset about my work-life balance, what I wanted to do with my life, what the purpose of life and fulfillment is. Um, it, it changed everything because Your perspective in that moment, I just thought, completely went like it just it it, it did a one eighty. Yeah. So at that point, I thought I, I I thought I'm like you're basically chasing money until you go to the grave. Now, obviously, you got to make money, right? But yeah. I had reached a point. I'm not a billionaire or anything like that, but I had reached a point where I didn't have to worry about working to to make ends meet anymore. And so I thought, okay, you're already at the point where you don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Like what you don't do you want to buy an island? Do you want to buy a yacht? What is it that you think you're going to do? Uh, just have more uh you know a, a higher number next to your net worth, but for what purpose? What is this going to do? And I realized I thought uh, you know I had become increasingly miserable in the work I was doing. I did not feel fulfilled. It was to make money and I thought, "Well, why are you doing this?" Especially now that you have this MS diagnosis where you know you might not go back to the usual aging process. You might, you know, get worse faster than than other people do. Mm-hmm. And so that just that clocks ticking everything. type of thing. It was a, it was very much a clocks ticking thing. And so I spent the better part of a year kind of relearning how to live everything from diet, exercise, the way that I processed my thoughts, the way that I, I chose to respond and react to things that other people did. You know, getting into mindfulness and wellness, uh, mindfulness and, and and meditation and and stoicism and all these other different things, uh, studying Taoism and all sorts of stuff. And then also at that same time, kind of figuring out, you know, sort of the, what do you want to do now that that you've grown up? And uh, that led me into what I'm doing now. That's awesome. Uh, So what point, uh, we'll backtrack a little bit, because I know I wanted to talk about about sobriety and recovery a little bit. Yeah. Because that was obviously long before (laughs) this diagnosis. Um, Yes. Yep. So what led up to that point and... What was your aha moment where you're like, this is gonna, I'm going down a bad path. I need, I don't see this ending well. Well, you know, what's interesting. My aha moment actually happened many years after I was sober. That's fine. And it's, I actually, for a long time, didn't talk about my sobriety journey because it felt kind of like anticlimactic. You hear a lot of people's sobriety journeys and they hit this rock bottom. They're going to end up in prison or they find themselves on the streets doing unspeakable things. I had multiple companies. Mm-hmm. I was very successful. I had uh, loved ones who cared about me. I was on the outset living a fantastic life, and I had actually convinced myself that I wasn't really an addict. I was just having a lot of fun, and I could afford to do it. Right? Yeah. That was yeah. what I told myself. So, what was interesting was around oh five oh six time, and I was getting out of a relationship. Um, but but around that time, I thought, you know what? I could probably do more and be more successful and have even more time if I wasn't high as often as as I was. And I, I was pretty much doing 
almost everything. Um, there were a few drugs I didn't do. Some of the yeah. harder, scarier stuff I, I didn't do or would only do occasionally. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I did pretty much everything. And so at first I stopped with the hard stuff, quote unquote. And that actually wasn't that hard. Yeah, alcohol that, that is was, fine, right? Uh, yeah. So I, 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 it, it's funny cause I up and before this, I actually didn't drink very much. I would occasionally get drunk, but I could, I maybe 20 times in my life had I actually gotten like really drunk or intoxicated. I, I, it, it was something I might do. It, I, it I, really wasn't your thing. The, the alcohol part was like occasional social drinking. It was funny. I would do, do, you know, bombed out on all these other drugs, but I might have a cocktail or something. Yeah. So, yeah. but so I, so I, I stopped the harder stuff. But I was still uh, smoking weed and occasionally drinking. The harder stuff wasn't hard; wasn't the hard part. It was the weed. When I said, you know what, I wonder how much better I'd feel because I actually felt better and it was easy. And I'm like, or relatively easy. I was like, that wasn't bad. And yeah, man, I, I feel good. And let's try it with the weed. That was hard. That was on and off. I'd stop for a while. I'd, you know, have a hard time eating for a few days. I'd feel sick. I'd feel my emotions all over the place. That was the better part of a couple weeks or a few weeks, couple months, something like that. And I don't really have any set dates. It was just something I was doing yeah. along the time of like started initially late 2005, kind of going into 2006. So I'll say, you know, I've been sober about 16 years. Like I don't have an actual specific date. But so when I got off the, 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 the weed, which I, I, I want to say for most people, I think weed is perfectly fine. I think most people can do it occasionally yeah. or medicinally or whatever else. I'm a, I have an addictive personality. I got to stay away from stuff like that. So that's I, how so I, I am got too. Up, yeah. It, it is, and and it's and it sucks because I think it's actually an incredible drug. I think it's an incredible, incredible thing that is helpful to so many people. For me, I need to stay away from it. it sounds like for you too. So yeah. I stopped that, and I thought, okay, but you know, the drinking was never a problem. And suddenly, I noticed I went from you know occasionally having a drink to like polishing off a bottle of Riesling every night. And I thought, nah, I see where this is going. And so I stopped doing that as well. And uh, there were a couple times after that, like um, toasted for, uh, you know, with, with a, a, a sip of champagne for my wedding and stuff like that. Uh, uh, I haven't done it in many, many years, but for basically for 16 years, I have not gotten intoxicated. And I did not for the longest time think that that was a very, a big story to tell. And I didn't even initially think it was truly addiction until when I would think back, I'd go, no, I had all the telltale signs of addiction. I just didn't have the social or or personal life repercussions yet. Um, I was able to maintain that. But in terms of the actual use, it was very much addiction. I've found in the last couple of years, I'd have people reach out and ask me to talk about my sobriety. And I go, I don't know how, how impactful this story is, but sure, I'll tell it. But it's actually been very impactful. And here's why. When I started telling my story, I'd have people reach out to me and say, I didn't realize until hearing your story that I was an addict. You know, I have yeah. a successful company. I have a family. Yeah, because people loves think me. you have to hit this ridiculously low yep. bottom. Yes. Yeah. And you, you got to go to prison. Yeah. You have to, Some you know, people do. Be, yeah. Some people oh, yeah. do have to sure. get there, but it's mm -hmm. just. Depends on the situation. Yeah. And some people never will. If you've yeah. got the financial situation and the social support, I probably, I likely never would have coasted. gone to prison. Yeah. I would have just died at some point because yeah. of my, my body couldn't have taken anymore. Yeah. So it would have been like, oh, everything's going great. And then I, you know, I, I drop dead or, or end up in the hospital or something like that. And so, you know, but yeah, everyone's, 
I thankfully didn't hit a rock bottom. But what I found is that it actually is good for me to tell this story because there's a lot of people out there that might be listening to this or watching this who made themselves think that everything's fine. And then they hear my story and go, oh, no, I am an addict, aren't I? Or or there's at least something to be concerned about here. And so I something I, I need to look at sober. Yeah, something that, that they need to look at. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I felt that way a little bit when I first uh, got into recovery because I started going to meetings. I'd hear these stories yeah. about people, you know, going to prison, people being homeless. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe I don't belong here. And then I'm, <laughs> I befriended uh, a good friend of mine now uh, yeah. and who has been in recovery for 30 years and he uh basically was just like you don't need this isn't a competition you're not trying yeah. to be the the lowest of the, the low it's not a competition that i'm yeah. that i'm trying to win yep and he's like he's like i never you know um i'm not going to tell his story but he right right he he was like me and you were educated we got through college. Yep. We did all this. That doesn't mean that we're not addicts. That doesn't exactly. mean that we don't have a problem. Uh, yep. It's yep. a. It's not even about the, the drugs necessarily. It's about the way we approach things and the way we obsess over things. And that's the bigger picture yep. that people yep. don't really talk about because they'll be like, oh, I'm an, you know, I don't even like saying I'm like, I'm an alcoholic or I'm addicted to this drug. I'm just an addict because it's, it could be more than drugs. Like when I was a kid, it was video games. I was ridiculously into video games. Like you could not pull me off them. I was, it was school video games, school video games for a long time. Yep. Yep. I actually found, and this was a, a very recent discovery. This was like 2017, 2018, when I was kind of relearning how to live. I had replaced my addiction to drugs with an addiction to success and Ooh, to my company. Got yeah. It. And that feels like that's not an addiction. That's that's good, right? That's you good. gotta you become successful, you make money, you're helping people, you blah blah, you know, you're you're you you convince yourself that it's good, but it had all the same hallmarks. I was miserable doing it, but felt like something in me was missing if I didn't do it. I felt a compulsion to do it when I would land the deal. I'd get that same rush that I would get doing drugs. I would feel miserable afterwards having to fulfill the work that came with getting that rush and that deal. It was literally an addiction addiction with all the the highs and lows and all the the uh, uh, compulsive behavior all of it the only difference was that because it's an addiction to success everyone's like oh look at him he's he they'd even say something like that wow that spike he's addicted to success and everyone would cheer and be happy and everything like you know it's like this great thing but it was an addiction all the same and it was it was the and again this was after all of this happening that i made this realization it was that hitting the, the that one two punch of you've got ms and oh by the way it doesn't even matter that you have ms because the real story is you're throwing your life away at something that you don't need and isn't helping you and is making you miserable um that made me kind of redo everything just to put this in perspective when i was diagnosed with ms and when i was having these conversations i was 100 pounds overweight i was 
uh, you know, had, had, you know, lots of money and was very successful. I was absolutely miserable. I did very little, uh, except for working. My wife would drag me out to things and I would, the whole time that I was there, all I was thinking about was, was, you know, the, getting the back to work. I had to do getting back to work, getting, you know, making the next deal. What am I going to say to this person when we, when we have the follow-up meeting and all that stuff. And so I had to, to, uh, spending 2017, I had to learn to re-gear how I was doing things. And during this time now, you know, campaigning, uh, during the VP campaign, trying to work on, you know, growing You Are the Power and doing all of this, there have been times where I've had to catch myself and realizing, yeah, don't let this be your next new addiction. Let this be a positive and, and healthy thing that you still have as part of a balance of a fully fulfilled life where you're spending time with your wife and with your family, where you're taking time for yourself, where you're making sure that you have time to rest, making sure you have time to exercise, making time that you have time for a well-rounded life. You don't just become, you know, blinders on focused on this one thing. And I'm grateful for that because that was the work I had to do to truly, like you said, we're not just drug addicts or recovering drug addicts. We are recovering addicts. We have a personality that is geared towards addiction. And it may have been a trigger like a personal trauma or a psychological trauma or physical trauma, like a pain injury or something like that, that, that pushes us over the edge. But sometimes it might not be. I don't, I don't even think there was anything that really pushed me over the edge. I think I was just geared towards finding the thing and, and devoting my everything to it. And so I've had to even now make sure that I'm keeping this in a proper perspective. And I'm, I'm glad that I've been able to do that. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, it's we are addicts and that is a part of our personality. It's just that it, it, it's good. We have a, a level of focus. Um, it, it's something we can use in a healthy way, but we have to make sure that we're keeping a healthy balance. Yeah. I also on top of that, which is a fun curveball for me, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So that's an even another addition layer to Perfect it. Perfect synergy. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect synergy between the two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as uh, mental illness, has there been anything that you've had to deal with besides the addiction or anything that you've noticed uh, that you've had to kind of overcome over the years at all I, or maybe in the as, family? As far back as I can remember, I have I always dealt with severe anxiety, severe bouts of depression and almost sort of like, I'm not sure if it's truly bipolar, but sort of this like mania followed by this very low period, mm -hmm. this mania feel. And so, and I've never been diagnosed with, um, with any of these things, but very obviously, you know, uh, the, the telltale signs of You can relate to that. Yeah. Very. And, and, and some elements of, uh, obsessive and compulsive behavior, certainly the addiction is a is oh, yeah. pure obsession and compulsion, but mostly a lot of uh, depression, anxiety, really just worrying worrying and then feeling bad about the worry and then feeling relief from the worry and, and all of that. And I will tell you, man, the things that helped me the most were, uh, I, I've, you know, I tried, especially in my teens and a little bit in my early twenties, um, I tried doing some of like the psychotropic meds and stuff like that. They didn't really help me. They've been helpful to other people, so I'm not knocking them, but they yeah. didn't really help me. What has helped me was, um, in fact, I'm actually in the process of putting together a video talking about how I 
you know, at all the things I did to, you know, get onto the other side from, from having very aggressive MS to having an MS that's completely in remission and being in the best health of my life. But a big component of that was relearning how to do everything. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I was able to get through the addictions uh, or the drug addiction. And then, and, but then in 2017, when I really took this on uh, after the diagnosis, um, I, what started with an attempt to, I, I was told you need to lose weight and you also need to reduce your stress because stress will make your symptoms worse. And it can also, you know, if stress is bad enough, it can trigger a relapse uh, if you really get yourself worked up. So mm-hmm. I spent a year like, you know, learning, you know, stress reduction stuff, mindfulness, meditation. Uh, I was doing a wellness uh, program uh, called Overcoming MS uh, and another one called the Walls Protocol. And both of them talked about mindfulness and, me- and meditation. Uh, that led me down this rabbit hole of getting into, uh, you know, Dao- d- d- researching Taoism and Zen Buddhism and Stoicism and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed, and, and between that and a uh, uh, a change to a very restrictive uh, nutrient focus on nutrient density type of diet that I'm on now and all the exercise. Not only did I lose weight, not only did my stress go down, but I don't deal with anxiety and depression anymore. Or I should say, I don't deal with unhealthy anxiety and depression. I'll still yeah. get sad. Yeah. I'll still get sad and I'll still get anxious is, about things. And which is that's, normal. You, it'd be normal. weird if you didn't. It would be weird if you didn't. That's called uh, sociopathy or yeah. psychopathy if, yeah. you, if you never feel any any negative. Yeah. But it's now in a balance. And I also can recognize it, can see it for what it is, and can, you know, at the times when it starts to get a little bit more overwhelming and it's not just, you know, starts going from a, a healthy anxiety to, you know, a little bit of an irrational anxiety, I have the tools to identify what it is, acknowledge it, make peace with it, but then figure out, okay, what is triggering this? Why am I having this kind of reaction? Where is this irrational thought coming from? Uh, What is causing me to react this way, as opposed to just going through the reaction and doing the up and down. And another big, and a big part of that is from the diet we eat. So the American diet is basically what I call the give yourself uh, depression, anxiety, and, uh, and, and simulate bipolar disorder, uh, diet where we eat these large amounts of carbs that cause this spike in our, in our, in our blood sugar and -hmm. in our energy levels and kind of cause a bit of a mania. And then when it starts to come down in between meals, then we start to experience a bit of a depression and then we start having carbs again. And of course, if any of us are having like energy drinks or out or caffeine on a regular basis, that's also causing these swings. We basically induce mental health problems in the way that the average American, average Westerner uh, just eats. Uh, you couple that with a sedentary lifestyle and and being on social media way too long, uh, that is going to make that that's if you didn't have mental illness, you're now going to create mental illness in the actions that you're taking. And so it has been very helpful to have a much healthier diet, uh, to exercise a lot, to get out that that um to get out that energy and not have all this surplus energy. And I spend a lot of time on social media because I have to, but I have yeah. a, a healthy understanding of what's happening on there. I don't judge myself against others. I realize that they're putting their best foot out there and that I shouldn't judge who I know myself to be yeah, with yeah. other people's, you know, presentation of who they are and all that kind of stuff. So it, the, the tools I learned over the course of 2017 going into 2018 are, have been life changing to me. And I, I'm grateful for that opportunity. So, what led to you being 
on on the ticket for 2020. So how did oh, that wow. come about? I would like to hear well, that story. Sure. Good so, segue. Yeah, yeah. So it, coming out of 2017, 2018, I'm like, all right, well, I feel fairly healed. My MS had stopped progressing noticeably. I had, you know, several months at that point of MRIs saying that there was no, you know, because I was getting at that point, almost every other month, I was getting relapses, it had stopped. And so every two to three months, I was getting follow up MRIs and things like that, showing that, yeah, there was no new damage, it had stopped. And, you know, things were looking better. And I had lost, you know, weight, and I was, uh, you know, feeling better. And I thought, you know what, I think I'm in a good place now. I think I can start doing this. But I didn't know the way I wanted to go with it. I knew the skill sets that I had, I knew the the points that I wanted to make, but I wasn't sure how I wanted to go about it. And I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do, I'm not going to do what I typically do, and try to like force this thing on everyone and, yeah. and try to ram it, you know, down everyone's throats. Control freak. Open them control freak alpha, you know, type of thing. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm I'm going to open myself up to possibilities and see where it goes. And so the first one I opened myself up to was, uh, someone, uh, my friend, Matt Wright asking me if I wanted to get involved with muddied waters media, hosting my own show. And then later becoming the co-host of the main show, the muddy waters of freedom with, with him. I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. And so I started doing that. Is this a podcast way, or radio show? Uh, no, podcast. Uh, so I started podcasting on Muddy Waters Media, which I do to this day. And uh, and so I, I that, you know, the show over time became more and more popular. And I started getting asked to be on other people's shows. Um, and so I was like, sure. And so I kept, again, staying open to the possibilities uh, and kind of grew more and more. Uh, that led to me interviewing some people who uh, actually Vermin Supreme. Uh, who mm -hmm. asked me to uh, to join him at? I was going to ask you about Vermin, yeah. So, so this is how that happened. I had Vermin on the show, and we had a great time. And then he invited me to join him when he came to South Carolina, which is where I am for our convention in 2019, uh, where he was running for president. And uh, and so we we did the thing. And uh, shortly after, he and his team reached out and said, "How'd you like to run for the Libertarian Party vice presidential nomination?" And I thought, well. I'm not going to win. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm still a relative unknown in the party because most of my podcasting was more in like the anarchist world more so than the libertarian party world. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, well, let me, but it, and I thought, but I do know what I want to say to them. I know what I want to talk about with, you know, how we can do better, more effective messaging, you know, how we can do outreach uh, and, and things like that. And if, mm -hmm. you know, running with vermin to kind of get people's attention uh, will help to do that. He'll get people's attention. That. Yeah, it'll get people's and it did get people's attention. And when I got their attention, I did stuff like uh, door knocking tours uh, in uh, all sorts of different communities, everything from well to do suburban communities uh, down to housing projects and everything in between. This was before the, the COVID lockdowns. This was like right before yeah. that. I did uh, tours on college campuses uh, in the Carolinas and, and, and generally just kind of I, I, it was sort of I went in. I never said I know I'm not going to get the nomination, but I kind of went in thinking I'm not here to try to get the nomination. I'm here to make a point about what we should be doing. Yeah. And as the months went on, competitors were dropping out and endorsing me. And then other bigger competitors would step in like Larry Sharp and people like that. And I'm like, okay, well, they're definitely going to win. And then they would either kind of take a step back or, or decide not to run or or they just weren't catching traction, or in the case of Larry Sharp, he didn't want to actually run in the first place. And so all these things happened where towards those last couple of weeks, 
I had a pretty good idea that I was going to win it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then after, after I got the nomination, it has been like someone set a bottle rocket and I've just been, you know, going ever since I thought we do the campaign run. I'd go across the country. I do all the stuff I did. And then after the campaign, things would kind of level off. I didn't realize that was just the beginning um, yeah. and that things would just keep going from there. And all along this whole time, running for, you know, getting involved in the podcasting, running for the nomination, running in the general election, um, it, it, you know, going out, speaking at all these different events like Freedom Fest and uh, Liberty Con, which is a, I'm actually going to be at that in Miami in October. In fact, if people want to let me do a, a quick plug on that. Yeah, go ahead. If people want to join if people want to join me in October in Miami and hang out with me and some of the, the giants of the Liberty world, if you go to LibertyCon.com and use the code spike, you get uh, I want to say 50 percent off your your entrance. Uh, so if you'd like to come out, we'd love to have you. It's, uh, I think, the 13th to the 15th or 14th to the 16th, second weekend of October. So libertycon.com and use code SPIKE. But anyway, doing events like that, it has, and and uh, starting You Are the Power, all of this has really just been remaining open to possibilities uh, as they come. And then figuring out, you know, as those possibilities come in, realizing what the overarching goal has always been and, and, and moving up, uh, forward from that. And is the overarching goal just to expand the liberty movement and just the yep. libertarian movement in general? The yes, in 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 so many words, yeah, yeah, I, in a I simple realized, way, yeah. I realized bef- even before uh, running for the nomination that for a long time libertarians have been trying to use a political party to make the social changes needed to then go downstream to lead to political changes. And that's not the way to do it. The political party's purpose is to run candidates for office and to try to win those elections. Mm-hmm. You can't use a political party as a social tool. And we don't need to, I mean, that's not theory. You can look at the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the conservatives and, and nationalists and, and populists that make up the Republican Party and the progressives and liberals and leftists who make up the Democrat Party, they don't do their activism in the Democrat Party or the Republican Party. They do it in these different organizations they set up in their own personal activism that they do. They do activism and then they use the the social disruption and, and spread of social ideas at the social level that then work their way downstream uh, from from the culture down to politics. And we've been doing it the other way and, and, and it doesn't work. So what I've been trying to do is what I've been doing with You Are the Power is we are growing a movement for liberty, a culture of people who recognize that we do best when we are most free and that the problems we're facing are as a result of too much power being in the hands of too few people and that the way to fix that is to take that power out of their hands and put it back in the hands of the people where it always belonged. By creating that culture, not only does it grow the movement that votes libertarian, but ultimately it doesn't even matter at that point. Because if enough people demand liberty, it doesn't matter if the Republican or the Democrat or the Libertarian or the Green or the Independent or Constitute, it doesn't matter who wins the election because mm-hmm. whoever wants to win that election is going to have to campaign on liberty. And if they don't follow through on liberty when they get elected, they'll get replaced with someone who will. So I believe it will grow the Libertarian Party, but more importantly, it grows the movement for liberty so that it doesn't matter who gets elected because whoever gets elected is going to push for the new status quo, which will be liberty.
and, and that's, I think that's one, basically what I'm working on. I think one thing that a lot of people can agree on, regardless of what political party they affiliate themselves with, is that there is a small group of people that control way too much. Yes. I, I think that's <laughs> like the majority of people, everyday people that you talk to can agree on that. There's a lot of people that can't agree on anything, but yes, but they agree that, on that one thing. Yeah. On yeah, that yeah, one yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely noticed that it, with all the conversation, I have tried to have as many conversations with people as I can, obviously doing nope. the podcast and just in general, I've always been somebody that likes to meet new people and have conversations. And that's one thing I noticed when I first got I had to like rewire my brain and change my perspective on everything when I, when I got clean, uh, because I didn't know how to socialize and didn't know how to talk to people without some type of substance fueling my, uh, my conversations. So, uh, and the people that have watched me grow into the person I am now, they're like, you're not the same. I mean, you're the same guy. You're but you're not as broken as you were when you started. And I'm like, I guess that's, that's a compliment. I'll take that. That's what that's mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing for a lot of people. I would say I, the social trying to think the social thing wasn't as hard for me. The hardest thing for me when I got off of um, when I, when I was not, when I was sober, the hardest thing for me was figuring out, okay, well, what is that release going to be? You know, when I'm stressed out, when I'm, when I'm, you know, on tilt, what is that thing that I can say I look forward to as a relief from all of yeah, this? Yeah, because that was like all and I look forward to for a while, you know. That was the thing, right? You're at work, you're having a tough day, you're having a tough day at school, you're having a tough day with your family, you're having a tough day, whatever. You're like, yeah, but when I can go home and smoke this or shoot that or snort this or drink this – That'll make it go away. I can get through anything if I can get home and do that. So what do you replace that with? And what I, what initially what I settled on was work. (laughs) I'll go make more money. And that felt healthy. And I think to some extent you could do that and it would be healthy. But I, being me, took that way to to a point where- Yeah, it wasn't in moderation at all. It was- it was not in moderation. It was at the expense of other things that were also important. And so even though it was, it's sort of like a food addiction, you have to eat. But obviously, if you take it past a certain point, now it's unhealthy. That's what I did with, with working and success. I became a true workaholic. And, you know, it's weird because we use workaholic or addicted to success. We use those things as like positives. But if, it, if, if it's true that someone really is a it's workaholic or a it's not good. It, it can be as, in some ways, as destructive as a drug addiction or a sex addiction or a food addiction or, or any other kind of acknowledged unhealthy addiction. It's an unhealthy addiction. Um, so what ended up becoming the thing that I look forward to is uh, a combination of things. One is spending time with family. Mm-hmm. Uh, another is um, uh, is, uh, engaging in the, the tools that I've learned. Like if I'm really stressed out saying, okay, I'm going to be able to, uh, later on, I'm going to be able to sit down and think this out logically and rationally and figure out a way forward on this. And, you know, things like that become the new thing. Uh, and then you can, you can also push it into other stuff. Like I'll have things where I'm like, 
you know, wow, I have this upcoming event and like this one in Miami, I, another mm-hmm. shameless plug on Liberty Con. I'm really looking forward to that because I am all about Miami and, you know, I'm all about the beach and I'm all about the water yeah. and the hotels right on the water. And so that's been a thing, you know, if I'm getting stressed out or whatever, I can say it's almost kind of like coming. a vacation. Yeah, kinda. it's like yeah. a mini vacation and yeah. I'm looking forward to it and I'm going to do that. So you find the... um healthy things to replace that with because that is a tough part of it is like that became my release that became my thing that made the rest of this all okay and you got to find things that are healthy that you can replace that with because there are times you need a a, 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 you know a, a release valve that you can hit and and you need to have those things that you can say yeah this is the thing that i i turn to uh or that or is one of the thing probably not something i turn to but one of the things that i know that i can use uh, or know that I can look forward to. Um, and that's been very helpful. It's usually the more simpler things that we didn't really pay attention to and yes. we were all screwed up. <laughs> that's yep. what I've noticed. Yeah. Like and the it, fa- family time go- and yep. yeah. Looking forward to just going out to eat with a friend or just like yep. little things like that. Yep. And, and another thing, Colin, um, is that in those moments, um, cause we, we also will tend to catastrophize stuff, right? So we'll say, uh, this is the worst possible thing that could be happening to me right now. But if I can get through this and survive it, proving that it's not the worst thing that could happen to me, but yeah. if, but if I can get through the worst possible thing ever, I can now do this thing and that'll make it okay. And that's a very unhealthy way of looking at things. So another thing that I learned is something called active gratitude and Without going into, I mean, we could spend hours just talking about what active gratitude is. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of videos. And if people want to find out about active gratitude, that would not be a bad use of your time. You could spend a lot of time finding out oh, yeah. about it and practicing how to use it. But once you get good at active gratitude, in the midst of something extremely stressful, extremely difficult, extremely not fulfilling, something you're regretting getting into, something that got thrown in your lap and you don't want to deal with it, some terrible, you know, a diagnosis, the loss of someone, you will find yourself without any prompt or without any conscious thought, you will find your mind thinking, hmm, I wonder what the silver lining is here. I wonder what the thing is here that I will be able to learn that will help me in the future. I wonder how in a real weird roundabout way, this is actually a bit of grace that this is happening to me now when I can figure out how to deal like things you would never think before that in the midst of something terrible without even meaning to your mind is like, Hmm, I wonder what I can be grateful for here. And that takes a tremendous amount of pressure off right then when your mind is looking for the thing to be grateful for and is actively searching for, without your prompting even, actively searching for the things to be grateful for and, and, and what, you know, the, the gratitude you should have, even in some of the worst moments that you have. These are all things I, I learned along the way. And I, I strongly encourage people to look into this stuff because part of having good mental health isn't just how do I stop being depressed? Because that's not actually real. The thing is, how do I deal with the things that happen, both internally and externally, that lead me to be depressed, that lead me to want to relapse or remain addicted or lead me to want to harm myself or lead me to want to do whatever the things are that I'm trying to avoid? Instead of 
trying to pretend that there's a way to make those things stop. Instead saying, no, some of these things are still going to happen. I'm still going to have these thoughts. Things that I can't control are going to happen to me or around me. How can I deal with them when they happen in a healthier and more rational and more um, healing and, and, uh, and positive way. And when you, when you, when you, that's the secret sauce, when you get into that, that's when you can go through some stuff that right now might seem like it would destroy you, uh, but be in the midst of it and feel fine and actually feel grateful uh, even still. Yeah. So having those preventative things that you're doing. So when shit does hit, hit hit the fan, you're just like, Oh, this is, yeah. Wish it, wish it always does. (laughs) Isn't that bad. I mean, I've had, a recent, a recent tragedy, uh, within, like I told you before we got on here that I've been doing stand up for a couple, well, about 18 months now. And we recently lost someone in our community due to suicide. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get a chance to really get to know him too well, but I did have him yeah. on the podcast and we talked about, talked about suicide. He was a veteran. We were wow. talking about veteran suicide, which is a huge problem. Uh, yeah. And suicide in general is a problem, but veteran suicide is, uh, he always used fortunately large problem. Yeah. He always used the number, uh, 22, uh, a day. Yeah. Yeah. 22 a day. He was really big on that. Uh, on promoting that. I think they have a whole organization behind it. I haven't looked into it. Uh, but when that happened, I was just like, obviously I was upset. I was, I was sad. I was kind of angry, you know, all those emotions, but you know, pe- and people did check on me and see how I was doing and things like that. I'm just like, you don't need to worry about me. Like I, my brain is ready for this kind of stuff to happen. Like I've wired my brain to be able to deal with th- these kind of things and to be there presently for the people that, you know, a couple of my friends that were a lot closer to him than I was that were like his best friends were, they were screwed up. They, they still are, uh, of course, rightfully so. I mean, it's terrible to deal with and, you know, questioning everything and all that whole process and just that ripple effect. And I'm just like, what I can do is be there for them. And, you know, spread more love because this guy was a loving guy cared about everybody he was like you know everybody like nobody was not a friend to him one of those type of people yeah yeah and uh and it's often those folks oh yeah that are battling the most inside oh yeah it's it's it is and and we see it a lot but yet it still doesn't intuitively make sense you don't Mm -hmm. picture the 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 guy or the girl who seems to have it together and is so kind and is so graceful and always has such a kind word and and such great advice, you would think they'd be the last people um, to be suffering from such severe mental health um, that they, you know, could potentially hurt themselves or even kill themselves. But yet, it's often them that do it. And the thing that they're doing uh, to help others is very often what they're doing is the thing that they haven't quite figure it out how to do for themselves. And so it's like they can do it for others. They can be that person for others, but for whatever reason, they, they, and they may even be able to do it sometimes, but they haven't quite figured out how to do that for themselves. And that's why I tell people it is very, very important 
in the work that you do. You know, I know with, you know, uh, 12 step programs and with pretty much any good accountability program for getting out of addiction, a big component of that is the, um, uh, it's not repentance, the, uh, uh, amending, uh, the amends. Yeah. The amends. Make to people. Yep. And the thing is in doing that, you're learning to be accountable to others. You're to apologize to others. You're learning how to treat others better. A big component that often gets left out because it's the hardest thing and it's something that isn't as apparent is you have to be doing that for yourself too. You have to be apologizing to yourself and then forgiving yourself. You have to be grateful for to to yourself for the things that you've done. Um, One of the, the, the mantras that I learned to say Um, when I was in them, because I would beat myself up about, you know, am I doing everything I can be doing to do, um, to, to fight this MS? Um, because even after I started doing it, I still progressed for a little bit before it really got under control. And I'm thinking I'm doing all this stuff and I still feel worse and what's going on. And is this ever going to get better? And I was kind of beating myself up, but then going between beating myself up and feeling hopeless, like there's nothing I can do. And one of the mantras I learned was saying that I am, uh, proud of myself and grateful for all of my efforts. And it was something I would learn that when I would start beating myself up, I'd say, I am grateful to myself and proud of myself for everything I'm doing to try it's to like get a this positive affirmation, positive affirmation, gratitude to self and acknowledgement of a, a, a certain level of, for lack of a better word, powerlessness. Like there's, there's only so yeah. much I can do. I'm doing everything I can. The rest of it is up to things that aren't necessarily under my control. And I'm not going to stop trying to find new things. I'm not going to stop trying to fight, but I'm doing everything I can in this moment. And I, and not just that, I'm grateful to myself and I'm proud of myself for that. And those are the things, man, that not only do I think are they a major component for my remaining in remission and my getting better and healing and, and, you know, my symptoms almost completely going away at this point and my MRIs looking better than the last time every single time. It's also why I rarely deal with depression and anxiety and stress anymore is because I've really embraced the idea of trying to be at least as kind to myself as I, as I try to be to others as well. Yeah. Um, because in reality, two things there in reality, number one, you're not going to, you're, there's going to be a point where you're, it's going to come to a head if you're not being kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other part of that is the kinder you are to yourself, the better of a place you are to be able to help others and be kind to others. So even if in, in this moment, if you're hearing this and going, look, I want to help others. I care about others. I love others. I don't really like myself. Well, yeah. that's a problem and, and that's okay. And you can learn to like yourself. But in the meantime, Focus on liking yourself if for no other reason than the more you can like yourself and help yourself and be kind to yourself, the better you can help other people too. And the more time, I promise you, because your brain is unsettlingly easy to reprogram. (laughs) We We are easy to program. Over time, as you work on linguistic programming and work on active gratitude and work on these things, eventually the things that you learn to say to yourself, you will start believing it. Um, it, it starts where you don't believe it, but you will eventually believe it. And that's when you really, that, that's what I call that the secret sauce. That's, that's when you really are in a much better place. When you truly do wake up and are grateful for yourself and to yourself and proud of yourself and are happy 
uh, for the opportunities that you have in this moment to try to do whatever it is you're doing um, and, and not just to help others, but also for yourself as well. That That's when you really know you're getting somewhere. The analogy that I really like when it comes to uh, helping yourself so you can help others even more is like, you know, on an airplane when you're when they go through the <laughs> oxygen, ma- the oxygen mask, you put your oxygen mask on first so you can help the other they person. Tell you to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's a reason because sure. you can't. That's a good point. Yeah. You can't help another person. I mean, I've heard that analogy a lot. Uh, that was one of the most simple ones I've heard. It was like, yeah, I mean, I literally cannot. I'm, I, I hit a certain level where I'm like, or I'll find myself, you know, doing really good, being able to help people a lot. And then all of a sudden it's like, I don't want anyone to call me because I'm not yep. in a good, good mood. Cause you're burned out. Yeah. Yep. Burned yep. out. Yep. I burned myself out and I've done it multiple times, even recently. I'm just like, man, uh, because I, you know, I sponsor people. I take, I help other people yeah. out, uh, and staying clean. And it's just like, man. And then once I pick up the phone and once I actually talk to that person, sometimes, uh, I have a good relationship with, uh, the people I sponsor, uh, at least the, the one person that I can talk to more, one of them is in prison. So that's a little bit easier or a little bit harder, I should say. Um, yeah. uh, I know where he's at, at least. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a dark joke. But um, but the getting in touch is the tougher one, yeah. Yeah. And, and your we, analogy about the oxygen thing. If you chose to put on someone else's mask before your own, you could get away with that maybe once. Yeah. And then you might think, you know what? I got some oxygen left in me. I can help this next person. And you might even be able to help them. But at some point you're going to need oxygen or you're not going to be able to help anyone else and you're not going to make it. And so if instead you put the oxygen on yourself, make sure you're good and you're taken care of, you could maybe help the whole plane. You could help everyone get off the, you know, like you could, you could maybe, you know, help everyone. Um, but it requires you to, to be kind to yourself and to help yourself first. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're in a bad place, um, and some people find that helping others in those moments helps them too. And that's fine because you're still helping yourself. If that's something that's helpful to you, it, serving others in that moment, that's a form of kindness to yourself. You've discovered something that helps you and you're you're using it to, to help others and to help yourself. But if you're someone that finds that in those moments that trying to help others burns you out, makes you feel like you can't do anymore, then in those moments, it's not good to do those things. It, it may feel like it's the right selfless thing, but it's, it's not. Long term, you need to focus primarily on yourself because that's it's from helping yourself and being kind to yourself and loving yourself and being grateful for this opportunity to be alive that you yourself have that you can then manifest that gratefulness to, in how you're helping others and do far better more good and far longer good and not get burned out and not and not feel that way and in those moments where you feel like you need a recharge because uh, it's not a static thing then you know maybe you step back and and you know, it's part of the work-life balance is making sure you're taking time for yourself. Yeah. Finding that balance between all the different things I do, like, you know, the podcasting, the, you know, the giving back, being in recovery and the comedy and uh, I've done stuff with music and just all these different things that I do. And then also making sure I'm spending time with my family and 
you know, I lost three grandparents over the course of uh, the pandemic, none because of COVID just all happened just in 18 months. And wow. uh, yeah, it's, um, and that's where I, where you were talking about that, like that silver lining. I mean, obviously it was yeah. terrible that I lost them, but I was grateful that I was able to be there for my family Yep, yep. and be that, um, be accountable and be strong and be that person that could help out with whatever, you know, whatever people needed help with during yep. that time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Cause everybody has a different grieving process and yep. I think I'm still, still trying to work through that. Uh, just cause it all happened within a matter of, like I said, oh, less, yep. yeah, it was yeah. just, um, and now I have one grandparent left and I was just like, and then I even beat myself up over that. I'm like, you don't talk to her enough. You don't go see her enough. <laughs> and, uh, you're just trying to find that, trying to find that balance between everything. And, uh, I, I work in customer service, so I can, it can get, I can get burnt out pretty easily from that. Ooh, yeah. yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm in leadership. So, uh, the calls I take are the ones that you don't want to take. Uh, oh, you're taking the people that want to escalate and yeah. you know, speak to the manager. Oh, yeah. God. I'm, not, yeah. I'm not, I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> over the, I, over the last year or so I've been doing that. And, uh, you know, obviously that came with the promotion and the pay increase, but it came with a lot more, uh, a lot more stress uh, when it comes turmoil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I'm learning to not take those calls, you know, personally and approaching it from a professional level. And it gets tough because I work, and this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about because it's mm -hmm. it's a problem that I didn't really realize was that big of a problem. One because I'm younger. Uh, too, because I just was naive and didn't really know about it was the healthcare, yeah. the healthcare industry in general. Yeah. Uh, so I work for a benefits, a third party benefits company. So we're basically we work, work with contract with these bigger companies yeah. and we're their, we're their call center and their benefit center for their employees to help them with their benefits and enroll and change and learn about their benefits. So I've learned so much about you know, the pharmaceutical companies um, and the the providers and the insurance companies. And they're just all just terrible. <laughs> it's just all bad yeah. Yeah. across yeah. the board. Yeah. And they're all making money and the patient's just getting, and for lack of a better way to put it, they're getting screwed and it's just terrible. And None of these companies, well, some of them, but some of them are trying to do the best they can to provide good yeah. benefits. But it's like the, the insurance companies have most of the power um, as well as the, you know, the doctors and the providers and the pharmaceutical companies. And it's just yep. gotten yep. so bad. Like, yeah. And everybody talks about it, like, how do we fix it? It's so broken, you know? Uh, and, you know, people are like, well, we should, tax the rich or you know uh <laughs> universal health care universal for all health care yeah. for all and all that stuff it's yeah. like how do we find a more affordable way to have access to you know mental and physical health care 
Right. And so what happens is very often in this debate, it it boils down to an argument over, okay, well, we have this big and growing bill for healthcare, this ridiculously massive bill. And just to put in perspective, like there's no one listening to this who doesn't realize healthcare is too expensive. But let's just let's put in perspective just how bad it is. The US government spends more money, more taxpayer money per patient on healthcare in this country than almost every other country on earth. There's like, I think four other countries. Now there are other countries that have literally universal healthcare. Everything's, you know, cradle to grave healthcare and they're spending less taxpayer money per, uh, per person, per patient than we are in the U S. And then we spend roughly two to three times as much as that out of pocket, either in insurance premiums or, you know, paying directly, you know, bills, uh, uh, bills or whatever else, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, everything else. Now, two small caveats there. Everything costs more in America than in most other countries, just because we're a richer country. So the cost of living is higher. And also we have more comprehensive coverage. So like most people don't have the kind of dental care that we do in the US. Like, you know, we joke about what people's teeth look like in other countries because it's it's much more comprehensive here, uh, our overall health. So those two copies, it's still way too expensive here. So the argument becomes, well, who's going to pay for this large and growing bill? Like, yeah. is it going to be the taxpayer? Is it going to be the patient? Is it going to be some combination of those things? But you'll notice, Colin and everyone else, very rarely does anyone talk about why the bill is so damn high and why it keeps growing in the first place. And the reason for that is also what the problem is. This system has been created either intentionally or through negligence. At this point, I'll say it's intentional. Even if it was negligent, even if it was unintentional initially, at this point, they're seeing the data, they know what they're doing. It's not anymore. Um, Government has created a system that incentivizes us being as sick but manageably sick as possible and to maximize the profit and, and money that's being made by a small handful of pharmaceutical companies, healthcare providing companies, insurance companies, benefits, co- you know, go down the line that these mega corporations can make billions and trillions of dollars at the expense, both in terms of money and in terms of the livelihood and, and lives of the patients, of the consumer. Well, we're all consumers of healthcare. We are all at some point patients or consumers of healthcare. So this affects everyone. And what we could spend hours getting into all of the regulations and subsidies and taxes and mandates and all the different things that are intentionally driving up healthcare. But here's what it comes down to. If I am a provider of X, let's say healthcare, whatever. If I'm a provider of a thing and you're a consumer of a thing, the calculation I have to make, the calculation I had to make as a web designer, the calculation I would have to make as a healthcare provider, if you're the person who is both consuming the product or service and paying for it, I have to figure out how to make as much money as I can, but still charge what as many people as possible can afford. Yeah. So, and they call this the price equilibrium. If I charge this amount, the vast majority of people can afford it. And those who can't afford it could get help to afford it. And so I'm maximizing the amount of people I can serve 
mm-hmm. by charging this much. If I charge this much, I'm not charging enough and I'm not making enough money. I might even be losing money. If I charge this much, I make more per patient, but I get way fewer patients because patients can't afford what I'm providing. So it's called a price equilibrium. And the price equilibrium is upset by two things, both of which exist in our healthcare system. Number one is regulations, taxes, and mandates that require the cost of those things to go up, that make the cost of those things go up. And the second thing is the removal from between the person consuming the product and the person paying for the product. If I no longer have to worry about what Colin can afford for healthcare and instead just need to know what Blue Cross or yeah. Kaiser Permanente Anthem, or whatever, whoever, yeah. those, a- Anthem, yeah. Anthem, any of these insurance companies, what they can afford for healthcare, well, now I can charge a lot more. And if a bunch of red tape gets put in place to try to make sure that what's needed is actually needed, well, all that does is add to the cost. You've got more people in the system. You've got more people that are are having to get paid a salary. You've got more potential places uh, where you can hide the skimming that's happening and all and the bribing that's happening and all of that, the the, the grift and, and graft that's happening within the system. The more you get government involved, basically. Uh, through regulation and through removal or, or separation between the consumer and the payer of the thing, it is necessarily going to drive up the cost of that thing. And this isn't theory. Uh, you can look and see when uh, prior to World War II, the cost of healthcare went up and went down the same as the cost of living did. If the cost of living went up X amount, the cost of healthcare went up X amount. If it went down X amount, the cost yeah. of healthcare went down X amount. Normal. Then during World War II, go ahead. That's normal. Right? Yeah, that's that's yeah. how things should be. Yeah. Then during World War II, in order to try to save money on the cost of the war effort, uh, because at this point, the war effort was employing almost every American. They were working for the war effort in a factory, in, uh, uh, you know, in accounting or whatever, like everyone was involved in the in the 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 national effort to produce for the war. And which meant that the federal government was basically paying everyone's salary. And so mm. to try to keep costs down, Franklin uh, FDR, uh, the president, threatened price maximum wages. He threatened to say, nope, you can't, you cannot pay a welder more than this amount per week or month or year or whatever. And the uh, employers panicked because it was hard to find anyone to do anything. And if you put a cap on it, well, now it was going to be even harder to find people to do the, the work that doing. needed to be done. It's like happening now. It's what's yeah. what's happening now to, for, for, but 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 like way Different. more intense. Yeah, and it was like an immediate threat that happened out of nowhere. And so to get around that, even though the price caps never got put in place, they kind of self controlled and said, "All right, uh, we're not going to pay any more than this." But what they did was they offered these kind of deferred legacy benefits to get around it. They'd say, "Well, we're going to pay for only this much right now, but we're going to give you comprehensive." health insurance for the rest of your life uh, if you work for this period of time and for your kids too. Something we'll pay for later. We don't have to worry about that now. Well, what that did was it made it where millions of Americans in a matter of weeks and months went from paying for their own health care out of pocket, which meant the doctor, the, the providers had to figure out how to, you know, how, how much their patients could afford to now having this huge multi-billion dollar pool that the doctors were charging. And of course, because the doctors knew they'd have to wait a while uh, to get the money because they had to go through this ridiculous red tape process, 
well, they charged a little bit more just for the fact that they were going to have to wait longer. And so yeah. you started seeing after World War II, during and after World War II, this decoupling. The cost of living is going up like this, but the cost of health care is going up like this. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse until the 1960s when they introduced Medicare, which was basically universal health care for old people, and Medicaid, which was basically universal health care for poor people, which meant that now you had the government paying directly for health care. Then you saw an even bigger gap between the general cost of living increase and the increase in healthcare going up. Then you saw these ridiculous ideas like cost plus legislation. And um, uh, that's really the biggest one. Uh, and uh, um, uh, um, uh, certificate of need laws and these absurd things that they, that, you know, a, ridiculous voodoo economists convinced uh, people in Congress and in state legislatures, oh, this will fix the cost of health care. And it made the health care go up. It cost the health care go up even more. You saw introductions of things like Medicare Part D in the 1990s, which led to a bigger increase, which led to the uh, implementation of Obamacare, which led to a bigger increase. And, and you can watch these things on a chart. The more involved government gets, not just in healthcare, in higher education, in um, in in automobiles, in housing. Yeah, education's been the spike has been. What's the percentage of since the nineties? It's like a hundred and two hundred percent increase or something crazy like oh, that. Oh, I'm sure it's even more than that. Yeah. And the debt has gone up uh, you know, like a thousand fold, right? Yeah. And that start and again you can map that, right? You can map when the Pell Grant started in the nineteen seventies, when you can map when the um that the the price caps uh started with uh with um tuitions. Um, but the price caps were all higher than they were originally charging, but they then introduced Pell Grants. So now the health so now the uh the colleges are like, well I don't have to make sure this student can afford it. I can make sure the federal government can afford it. They can print money out of thin air. I can charge whatever I want. And you can watch as each of these policies gets implemented. And the most recent devastating one uh, being the in Obamacare, where they nationalized, basically nationalized or federally underwrote all uh, college loans. That's when it just went through the roof. Now the lenders will will lend you whatever they want to because they know they'll get the money one way or another. If they don't get it from you, they'll get it from the federal government. You're getting that. They're getting that money. Uh, they're, they're originating those loans and getting that money regardless. And so, and this most recent move with you know forgiving the first ten or twenty thousand yeah, dollars, yeah. they're now rewarding those lenders and loan originators and universities for the predatory practices they've been engaging with. So I guarantee you, it's going to go up even more to offset uh, that in the future. So all of these things, and it wasn't like they paid for that forgiveness anyway. The taxpayer did. So they yeah. got this big lump sum of money to reward them for their terrible uh, and, and predatory practices that they're doing. We can do this with everything, uh, housing, healthcare, education, all of the things that government has driven up the cost for. And it is when government injects itself into something, it creates a series of perverse incentives that inverts regular market forces and, and basically requires for the cost to go up. And what also happens while those costs are going up and all these regulations are being added, the other thing that happens is small providers go away and get replaced with big multinational, multi-billion dollar providers. So the era of the, the small local doctor in his own office that he runs himself, that's almost over. That yeah, almost doesn't I've exist anymore. That. Yeah. It, 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 because they can't, they cannot afford. If you have a doctor's office, you're spending at minimum at least a few million dollars a year just to make sure you're complying with all the federal, state, local, and insurance regulations. 
Or you can just become an employee of Atrium or Kaiser Permanente or Cleveland. What's that? They'll pay a big salary and you're good. They'll pay you a salary. But here's the thing, man. Now you're paying your own. uh, You're still paying your own. uh, your own malpractice insurance. Oh. They're giving you way more patience than you had before. And it's actually they not t- good. The, I've the, been told the, that they're timed as well. They're timed. It's it, the They are far more regulated. They're given a much larger patient load, which leads to more malpractice because the more patients you're working on, the less time you have to actually overlook what you're doing, the more likely you are to make mistakes. Well, that makes your premium go up. That makes the cost to, uh, health, to, to the healthcare system overall go up because every time there's malpractice, that is fed into the cost of the provision of healthcare because you gotta, you gotta pay off that person or their survivors, you know, for the damage that was done to them, of course, right? So all of these things necessarily make things worse. And now the average person looking at this goes, you know, these corporations are getting bigger and bigger and making more and more money. And our healthcare system isn't any darn better for it. I think the government needs to get involved. The government getting involved is what created all of this in the first place. So that's my involved. thoughts. That's my, I, I know this was a, a much longer talk than I maybe needed to give on it, but no, it's also okay. not just, it's not just the answer for healthcare. It's the answer for everything. When government gets involved in X, it gets more expensive. The quality goes down. The price equilibrium goes away. The customer or consumer satisfaction goes down and the big corporations take over from the small guy and now run the show. That's what happens with everything. And the answer to that, the, the solution to that is to undo all of that. Get rid of the subsidies, get rid of the regulations, get rid of the taxes, get rid of the mandates. Let the market have more flexibility to do what it needs to do, allow for more providers to get involved, force them to have the price equilibrium of being able to provide what people can afford, and you will watch everything slowly get better. It will never be perfect. There will always be problems. But the more you get government out of it, the better it will be as a whole for everyone. Yeah, because the more providers, obviously, that you know, if a provider's crap, they're just not gonna. You're just not gonna go to that provider. You're gonna go across exactly. the street to go to the other one that's better. Exactly. Yep. Especially if the price is like exactly the same. It's like a restaurant, like kind of. Yep. You know. I'm exactly. Not go to the I. I, I... I actually use the the chicken sandwich uh, 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 um, analogy. Imagine if the way you got chicken sandwich. Right now, you go to you want a chicken sandwich. You can go to this store. They got a chicken Many sandwich. Options. The fast food restaurant. Yeah. What's that? Many options. You got many options and different options. You know, this sandwich is only a couple bucks. Uh, it's not the best sandwich, but it's actually good. And it's, you know, it'll fill my stomach. This sandwich at this restaurant, it's like 12 bucks. But man, it's like one of the best sandwiches you'll ever have. And there's all these different options. And if this one, you might find the $12 sandwich sucks and it doesn't taste good. And so you don't go and you go on Yelp or no one uses Yelp anymore. You go on Facebook or Google or, or whatever and you say, yeah. oh, this sandwich was terrible. Don't go there, whatever, okay? And then they have to respond and go, oh, we're so sorry. We're, we're fixing our, uh, our, our breading or whatever. You have many different options. And the level of regulation is, is, I mean, everything's regulated, but it's nowhere near as high. Now, imagine if instead some uh, politician got up and said, you know what? Chicken sandwiches are a human right, and you should be able to get all the chicken sandwiches you ever want. 
Well, what would end up happening is you would now have maybe one or two places you could go to to get chicken sandwiches. And in order to get that chicken sandwich, you'd have to pull out your chicken sandwich insurance card. Uh, and you, you, would, you would be paying like 50, 60 bucks or 80 bucks a month. Uh, and, and it just keeps going up. Man, now it's 150 a month. It's going to be 200 next year. But I can get as many chicken sandwiches as I want. Well, what that really means is when I go in, they go, well, you've already had your chicken sandwich for this week. And then you get the chicken sandwich and you go, this doesn't look very good. And then and when you go into the chicken sandwich store, you say, listen, I'll, how about I just pay for it? And they go, oh, we don't even know what the chicken sandwich costs. Give us your card. And so you give them your channel and they go, OK, yeah, you got the Blue Cross Blue Chicken card. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we still don't know what it costs. Uh, we have uh, eight sandwiches available this week. Um, can you come in at this time to get it? And you go in and the, the sandwich isn't that great, but there's nothing you can do about it because it's, it's it's the sandwich you get. And then you go online and go, this is all messed up. These big corporations are providing me with terrible sandwiches and my chicken sandwich premium gets goes up i think the government should be more involved yeah yeah it's uh it's something people don't really think about too much because they're right. like because the government's so big they're just like they think it has all this power and they can change everything and do a lot of good but they they're the system is set up intentionally to put the blame on the wrong people. And those people don't mind having the blame put on them. That's the crazy thing. The big corporations, they don't care if you hate them. They don't care if yeah, you they're making money, demand, so. you know, Jeff, like Jeff Bezos, you know, people are demanding that Jeff Bezos raise the, the, his wages and, and that we have a, a minimum wage so that Jeff Bezos has to pay his, his employees more. Jeff Bezos is happy about that. Jeff Bezos would love nothing more than for there to be a federal minimum wage of like 25, 30 bucks, something like that. Do you know why? Because only Jeff Bezos and Walmart and maybe Target and Costco and a handful of other employers could actually afford that. All of their smaller competitors, the mom and pop shops, the smaller website, they can't afford 25, 30 bucks an hour for their employees. They're not even making that much. It's them that suffers from that. So Jeff Bezos has absolutely no problem with you looking at him and thinking he is the worst person to ever exist as long as you then follow that up with demands for the government to create even more regulations and mandates and taxes and subsidies that will necessarily make Jeff Bezos even richer and kill off all of his smaller competitors. If, if it takes everyone hating him, he is perfectly fine with that. It's a scam. You're being scammed. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody thinks about the smaller businesses as much as everybody's like always support local, support local, but also yeah. raise the minimum wage. It's like, what do you want? Like <laughs> you can't, you can't have both really yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And also the minimum wage, I could get into that, wasn't created to survive on. Um, it, that's No, it, it wasn't. Uh, it was created. But the other thing is that, <laughs> so if you go back far enough, the minimum wage was created to keep black people from getting good jobs. Oh, it so, was. Yeah. So initially, the original wage mandates in this country were created in the late 1800s and coming into the early 1900s. So you had all these people that used to be slaves 
And now they're not slaves. Now they're, they're free people and they can work for the same jobs that white people have been working for. And, uh, you know, so they've started, they started doing jobs. Like one, one example was they started working on these trains. That was how most people got around back then was by train, mm-hmm. um, train travel. And so they would work as like the, the people, I forget there was a, a, a name for them, but basically like the, how we have like flight attendants on, on planes, they were that for the trains. They'd bring you food, yeah. they'd, you know, get you to, you see almost like ushers. Yeah. Um, I, there's a term for it and I'm forgetting it. I don't um, know it either. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. But anyway, it, it was like a train attendant. You know, they would get yeah. you to, you know, they usher you to your seat. They would help you, uh, you know, if you wanted food or they want, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. And uh, an increasing number of them were black. Well, the unions were not too happy at all about that uh, because uh, their white in, their white uh, union members were getting displaced by black workers. Uh, and a lot of the black workers, for whatever reason, often didn't join the union. Um, but so what happened was they said, well, they could not outright because they tried to do stuff in different industries where they'd say, okay, black people aren't allowed to do this job. And the government would step in and say, yeah, you can't do that. That's, that's against the law. Discrimination. Like, you know, it, yeah. yeah. That's the 14th amendment. Like you can't, you can't do that. And so, um, uh, so what they started doing is they'd say, okay, you have to pay them this much. You have to pay whoever you hire for this, this much. Well, this was still a pretty racist country. So even if someone was like, you know, someone owned a, a business and, uh, you know, he was willing to hire a black person or an Irish person or an Italian person or a Jewish person. But if he's got to pay this much for it, well, I'm going to get in a good white person to do that instead. Keep in mind, Jews and I, uh, Italians and Irish and Greek people were not considered white back then. They'd go and find a nice white Anglo-Saxon person to do that job because, by gosh, if I'm paying that much, I'm certainly not paying for one of these lesser race peoples to do that. So, no, the original minimum wage laws were intentionally – like by – it wasn't like a, a hidden thing. They said that's what it was for, was to uh, keep um, black and and uh, and what they considered non white people from being able to get into certain industries. So that, that's the, that's the original roots. And it's not for nothing that whenever a minimum wage increase or, or mandate gets implemented in a given area, black and brown workers disproportionately suffer from layoffs and lack of, you know, hiring freezes and, and the, the negative consequences of those required wage increases. It's always disproportionately felt by, you know, by the more marginalized people like black and brown people and, and immigrants and so forth. They're the ones who feel it the worst. So even if that's not the intention, that's still what ends up happening. To this day? To this day, yeah. Be- because they're disproportionately the ones the most likely to work those lower wage jobs. So, uh, so anything that forces those, um, those wages to go up for those lower wage jobs, anyone who is disproportionately more likely to be working in those jobs is disproportionately more likely to get fired disproportionately. So it's not even, well, I'll, I'll fire the black guy then it's, it's that it's, it's even if that's not what's happening just by virtue of the fact that they're more likely to be working those jobs, they're the ones that are the more likely to be, uh, harmed by the layoffs and the hiring freezes and all the stuff that those uh, wage increases cause. So, you know, you got to think of these things when you're, when you're pushing for, uh, you know, mandates and changes you got to look at the trade-off like who's being hurt by this and and again when you get government involved in something you are getting a what is essentially a violent monopoly um 
if anyone else operated the way the government does, we'd call them the mafia uh, or a terrorist group or organized crime. So when you get this sort of legalized organized crime terror group to tell businesses how to operate, don't be surprised if it ends up leading to bad outcomes because they're not accountable for it. They they aren't the ones left holding the bag for the the consequences of the things they forced other people to do. Yeah, who is it? Who is there to hold them accountable besides us? Yeah. Exactly. So that that's where we come in. That's where we have to hold. And that's what I'm working on with you or the power. We have to hold them accountable. We have to hold them accountable. We don't scapegoat these people over here who they blamed it on, uh, whether they're blaming it on, you know, this specific rich person or corporation who usually has no problem with being blamed for it. But that's not what the problem is. It's them. It's not the immigrant. It's them. It's not the black person. It's them. It's not the white person. It's them. It's not left versus right or black versus white or male versus female or any of the verses that they put it is it's always the 1v1 thing too i've noticed yeah it's always the divide and conquer right if i can get you to hate me or 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 if i can get you to hate that person and that person to hate you and i can hurt you both and get you both to advocate for me to hurt the other one and so i oblige both of you by hurting both of you um then i can get away with that indefinitely the moment you two realize that i'm the problem now i can't get over on you anymore and so there is a one versus one here, but it's not black versus white or left versus right or man versus woman or rich versus poor, or whatever. It is the people versus a very small handful of incredibly powerful, incredibly cynical people who have been scamming us for way too long. That's the real divide. And when we realize that, and when we realize that we have all the chips in our hand, you know, every bit of power they have is presumed. Every bit of power they have is something we've demanded that they have. And Mm -hmm. we can very, very quickly change that balance of power. But the first step is realizing that the problem is that they have that much power in the first place. And that's the work I'm doing with you or the power. That makes a lot of sense. I want to segue that to talking about what I've noticed that you've been focusing a lot of your time on and that as far as accountability, and that's with, uh, with the police yeah, uh, yeah. and with, uh, with just overall criminal justice and that whole system mm-hmm. obviously is not great either for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I actually had a, and I'm going to, I really want to send you once I get done. Uh, once we get done here, once I actually put out this episode, I recorded an episode a couple days ago with a new friend of mine. I didn't really know his story and he had just the worst situation with the criminal justice system and just fighting and spending thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands right. of dollars yeah. just to clear his name of a crime. He didn't even commit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll, and I told him I would bring it up too, because he's a huge fan of yours. Um, I'm sure. And, uh, it's just, I don't know. It's just, uh, it was heartbreaking to hear the story. Cause he's like, dude, it like is. it was just like a, he said, she said thing. And he happens to be, he happened to be a very successful business owner. He's also half black and he was in, I think Virginia at the time. And, you know, basic, and he was traveling in and out of the country a lot. So they like 
developed this story like he was this big kingpin person yeah <laughs> and yeah. he this really, happens a lot and this he happens a lot and he really was just going he had family in the philippines is he's half filipino yeah you know and he could afford to do that because he had a good successful business because he yep. knows how to run a good business it's crazy and uh I've noticed you advocating for a couple different people right now, and uh, I wanted to give you the chance to kind of explain on what you're doing and uh, sure. kind of the grassroots uh, movement you've got going on to, you know, call those people out that are, you know, causing all these problems that we're having and within our criminal justice system. Sure, and this is a perfect thing to close on in this conversation. Yeah. This that what your friend went through. I wish I could say this was some, you know, uncommon one off the amount of let's call it what it is framing that government does to people. On du- and they double regular, down, they double down, they triple down, they're casual about it. And the reason is, again, going back to that whole perverse incentive things, we have created, we have allowed politicians to create a system that incentivizes arrests, prosecutions, and maximum sentencing. So we need people being arrested, we need people being found guilty, and we need people filling the prisons. And so now the criminal justice system is really just a mill for arresting people, prosecuting them, finding them guilty, or forcing them to plea so that we can throw them in prison. And it from every step of the way, you have cottage industries built around it. So like when people will get mad about the private prison industry, which is a problem, it's, ma- it's a major problem, but then they'll act like if we change it from private prisons to government run prisons, well, problem solves, friends. No, that's not. The private prison industry is a symptom of the problem. The problem is that at every single step, they have incentivized a system that looks for people to arrest and imprison and, and destroy their lives. And what they do to make sure that they can't have any reprisals against them, those people as felons aren't allowed to vote because why would you let your victims vote to replace you? So that's the system we have. And so what your friend has gone through is very, 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 very common and increasingly common. It's interesting to watch a lot of people right now who feel like Donald Trump is being framed or whatever. And I, I don't know if he is or not. But a lot of these are the same people that will very often, very often, anything the police do is fine. Anything the government, you know, anything law enforcement or prosecutors or judges do is perfectly fine. Uh, and now they're realizing that, well, maybe it's not. Maybe they're yeah. wrong very often. And so, like I told you, the, the purpose because of Because their hero is being taken down. They're their heroes. Yeah, they're, their hero is taken down, but they're being taken down by their other hero. Yeah. And so now they have to think like, well, which is our real, you know, who who's the real good guy here? And yeah. the answer is probably neither. But anyway, yeah. um, what we're doing with you or the power is we're exposing people to the reality that we do best when we're most free, and that the problems that we're facing are as a direct result of too much power being in the hands of too few people. And the answer is to take the power out of their hands and put it back in the hands of the people. One of the ways that we've been very successful in doing that is finding examples in their backyard, not some other city, some other state, some other country, whatever, right where they live, where someone has been wrongfully accused, someone has been run roughshod over by their local government, someone is being treated poorly, and we can demonstrate it where it's indisputable. There is no disagreement that this is what has happened. 
And there's no disagreement that the answer is for the people who did that bad thing to them to be held accountable. And sometimes it's school boards doing that. Sometimes it's zoning boards doing it. uh, Sometimes it's city councils doing it. And sometimes it's the police that are doing it. And by and, and so what we do is when we find out about these stories, what we've been picking right now are the ones where it is indisputable. There is video evidence. There is, you know, a paper trail a mile long. So no one can argue about this. This is what happened. This is the bad thing that happened. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples of that. Uh, and, and one was uh, happened last year and we were able to help this lady. Uh, so there was a lazy lady named Susanna Alphalabi. I think I'm saying that cra- correctly in uh, Bourbon, Indiana. Her home burned down um, to like the foundation, like it was totaled. And yeah. thankfully, she and her family survived. You know, everyone was okay, and um, and they were rebuilding the home uh, while they were waiting for the home to get rebuilt. And for anyone who's had to, you know, file an insurance claim on you know renovation or rebuilding for a home, it takes months. It can yeah. take years. And so, in the meantime, the insurance company uh, gave her a um, like an RV, a temporary uh, mobile housing for her to live in uh, while her home's being built, so that she isn't outside in the yeah. train like you know so she has a home and it's a it's it's you know it's not a large home uh and it, decent, but it is a it's decent and it and it meets all of the needs for someone to live in uh, so that she can live in it maybe not as comfortably as she'd like but she can do it so the zoning board for whatever reason didn't like that and so they met and they decided to fine her this ridiculous amount of, i think it was like ten thousand dollars a day or five thousand dollars a day some absurd thing uh, for being for having two residences on her property. Well, one of the residences had been burned to the ground. But technically, the zoning said that she couldn't have two residences. And until she came into compliance by removing that other residence, uh, she basically becoming homeless, uh, she would be facing fines and eventually jail time. They were threatening also to implement jail time if she didn't comply. And then later on down the road, they started, you know, bringing in CPS and threatening to take her kids. And of course, CPS would show up and go, they got food, they got, you know, a shower, they got a bathroom. It's it's good. Not ideal, but it's fine. You're not abusing or neglecting them. But they fought and they fought and they fought. And she was, you know, had these fines massing up that she had no hope to pay. They were now threatening, well, once you go past owing this much, we can seize your property, which is what they wanted to do all along. They wanted to steal her land so they could develop it or do whatever they sell it, do whatever they wanted to it. That's all this was about. And so uh, she reached out to her local media. The local media uh, got the news out there uh, on one news article or one news story about it. And thankfully, one of our activists was able to find out about it. And we were able to get involved. And very quickly, they reversed. Uh, they, they kind of stopped fighting back. Uh, or, or I should say they, they stopped being as aggressive about it. We were able to help uh, uh, Suzanne get the resources she needed to fight it in court. She won, uh, beat it in court. Uh, and I think actually a couple weeks ago, she actually moved into her home and had a housewarming. Um, so I, I got awesome. to meet them in, uh, right before she moved in. But, uh, but that's one example. And everyone in that community now sees that the problem was that this zoning board had way too much power and way too little accountability. Um, and that that's, you know, they need to scale that back. Uh, another one we've worked, been working on more recently is in Gastonia, North Carolina, uh, where a homeless veteran and his PTSD service dog, he was beaten. He was, uh, wrongfully arrested. 
uh, well, let's just say he was beaten. He was arrested. His service dog was tased. She later died. Um, and uh, he was charged with all these charges. The police said that he was breaking the law. He refused to comply and the dog bit them. Okay, well, if that's what happened, uh, then, you know, then that would explain why they why they had to rough him up and arrest him yeah. and, and tase the dog. Um, he, uh, the, the the veteran, Joshua, uh, and and the all of the eyewitnesses said, no, that's not what happened at all. Um, they actually, uh, he was not breaking the law. He was complying with them. They arrested him anyway. They roughed him up real bad. They tased his dog. The dog came nowhere near them, did not bite anyone. And, uh, and you know, we, that, that's what happened. Well, both officers and many other officers who responded afterwards, they all had body cams on. Okay, so release the footage so we can see what happened. You know, he said, she said all day long, let's see the footage. We can see what happened. Well, the DA, Travis uh, Page, started fighting uh, and fought for months to keep it blocked because in North Carolina, they can do that. The uh, while at the same time uh, putting out all these press releases about how terrible Josh was, how un- non-compliant he was, how they tried to help him, how you know smearing basically him. smearing him, slandering him, and all of that stuff. Yeah, and so they did all of that, and they had been you know we could spend a long time talking about this. They did this to so many different people, yeah. um, and they had been expecting that they could just run roughshod over Joshua like they'd done to so many other people. Then we found out about it. Mm-hmm. And we have been holding them accountable ever since. Uh, we uh, we created such a controversy or created so much attention around it, around the controversy that the judge re-examined the case and pushed for all the body cam footage to be released. Uh, you can now see that footage uh, on my YouTube channel and on Joshua's YouTube channel. Um, and, uh, and now you can see it was actually worse than Joshua remembered. Not only did he do nothing wrong, not only did they lie, not only did they beat him up and, and, uh, wrongfully arrest him, not only did they tase the dog, but they also were intimidating the witnesses, threatening to put them in jail, telling them to go away, refusing to take their statements. They lied to the responding supervisors about what happened. They lied to Joshua that they had his dog sunshine, that they had her with animal control when animal controlled showed up they lied to them and said they already had the thing taken care of that they had the dog uh they uh, sent out a press release lying about what happened the whole time like everything that we thought had happened it was actually worse once we saw the Jeez. footage and so now we're pushing oh there's for, a reason uh, there are there are reason there's a reason he was holding it back exactly exactly and so now we're pushing for accountability we're pushing yeah. for travis page to be uh replaced um and we're pushing for by the voters. We're pushing for an outside investigation into what happened. Uh, we are pushing for changes to North Carolina law so that the body cam footage uh, can be more easily released because Joshua had to spend thousands of dollars. I mean, this is a man who was homeless. Thankfully, he's not anymore, but he had to spend thousands of dollars to be able to get to to fight it in court uh, mm-hmm. to get it uh, released. It should be released automatically. Um, so we, there are a lot of we still have work that we're doing there and in many other cases across the country. But every single one of them is the same thing. We find people who are being victimized by government at the local level. We help them and the locals in that area to organize around getting that changed and holding the, the people who did the bad things accountable um, and replacing them with people who won't do that. But more importantly, long term, or I guess just as importantly, long term, we're showing them that this is not an, a one off. 
This is not just that this bad person did this thing to this innocent person. This is what happens when there's too much power in the hands of too few people. This is what happens when a society is built on force and coercion instead of respect for people's lives and rights and autonomy and property. And that the way to fix it is to do the opposite. Have a society that's based on respect for human rights and autonomy and life and property uh, and, and, and dismantle uh, structures and systems that put too much power in the hands of too few people. Um, so it's not just about fixing those immediate problems, but showing that this is part of a pattern of what happens when there's too much centralized power and working to decentralize that power. And that's what we do every day in You Are the Power. Um, if you would like to get involved in that, um, then if you go to youarethepower.net, um, that is our website, and uh, we would love to have you join and be a part of it. And uh, that's the work that we do. Um, if you want to help uh, liberate your community and help spread the, the word of liberty and help spread the message of, of human respect, then come join us at youarethepower.net. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I, I greatly appreciate your time, Colin. I, I want to leave everyone with one last thing if I can. Yeah, um, go ahead. It's something that uh, I try to tell I, I, most recently. It's something I I have been saying to myself for quite some time. And I, I realized that this I, it occurs to me this might help other people too. Especially if you're dealing with addiction or the aftermath of addiction or mental health issues or really just a lot of people that are stressed out. You can very often lose track of just how much of a miracle it is that you're here right now. And it can feel like this is just this terrible thing that's happening and why am I even here and what's this all about? And a bunch of questions that we really don't have answers to uh, and can make you stressed out and make things even worse. I want to talk briefly about the miracle it is that you're here. So the way that you were created was when the sperm uh, it, um, fertilized an egg, creating you, creating an embryo, which became a zygote, which became a fetus, which became a, a, a born human. Um, but it was you. From the beginning, it was you. And just the, the, the fact that your particular sperm of the millions or tens of however many millions of other sperm is the one that made it. That alone makes you as big of a miracle as many jackpots for uh for like lotteries and, and yeah. slot machines. Like you're all, right right there, you're already at like hit the jackpot level luck uh and grace that you that you even exist there. But mm-hmm. then you have to think of the fact that those two people came in contact to begin with, whether you were born the old-fashioned way uh, through, you know, two people coming together to make a kid, uh, the old-fashioned baby-making way, or whether you came through uh, in vitro fertilization, whether you came through a surrogacy or something like that, however you were created, all of the things that could have happened to prevent those two people from connecting, if you think of uh, how a, 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 a breeze could have caused your uh, your father to avert their eyes away from the breeze or the wind and not see your mother uh, and walk past her and never meet her. Or, you know, a phone call keeps your father for or your mother from checking her dating app. Well, I guess if you're if you're watching this, that you're you were born before dating app, <laughs> yeah. whatever, you know, the, however, however your your mother met your father, like all of the things that could have happened. All the way up to that moment of them meeting and, and consummating or, or however else uh, you were you were born, all of the things that could have happened to prevent them from from coming together there there's it's impossible to measure 
all the different factors that could have happened differently. So now you're in the immeasurable level. I mean, we're, we're, we're billions and billions. We're, un, we're an uncountable number of times past the fortune it would take to win the next mega millions. Okay. But that's just that one generation because your parents or biological parents or whatever, your, your, the, 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 the person who made your sperm and the person who had your egg, uh, they too, were the result of a similar set of of incalculable miracle who themselves the the generation before them their parents were each the product of an incalculable miracle who were also the children of parents who were the product of an incalculable incalculable miracle going back over 150,000 years which is the amount of time that human beings have been on this planet and it goes even deeper because before the humans were the uh, the, the simians or the, the the primates, the lesser primates uh, that our ancestors uh, evolved from. Like if you go back far enough, it's incalculable upon incalculable upon incalculable upon incalculable. It is impossibly absurdly, even if you're someone that believes the earth is only 6,000 years old, it's still many hundreds of times over a number of incalculable events uh, or incalculable amount of, of luck that it took for you to get here and be here in this moment. So no matter what is happening to you, no matter what you will face in the future, uh, no matter how good things appear to be or how bad things appear to be or how good or bad they will be in the future, the mere fact that you are here cannot it can't even be measured how fortunate it is that you are here in this moment you are nothing short of a miracle and that is the one thing i just want to leave you with is that you know just that reality it doesn't necessarily make things better but if there's ever a time when you feel like you're unlucky you are beyond lucky there are an incalculable number of things or beings who never came into existence because of you know their sperm not making it or or the wind blowing the wrong way and 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 the the wrong the right people not meeting or whatever else so if there's nothing else you can hold on to that it's something i've used many times and i if there's anyone that that helps i hope it helps them yeah i just have one last question just because sure. some, somebody asked a question i posted something on facebook and okay. that was just real quick and I know you could talk about this for a long time. So just like sure, the, sure. the quick, ver- the quick version <laughs> sure. of it, the quick version. Yes. Uh, so I had a friend ask about the COVID restrictions oh, uh, that are, <laughs> that have been pretty lax lately, but uh. for whatever reason, they're still very not lax for lack of a better way to put it right, on yeah. nursing homes. And yes. do you think, and that's separating families. And I had two of my grandparents were in nursing homes and I think yep. the COVID lockdowns contributed to them passing away as quickly as they did. I mean, they were older obviously, but yep. I don't think them being locked down and us having to visit them through a window helped yep. their situation yep. at all. No. So do you, I, I'm just wondering why that's still like even a thing at this point. Like, why is that even, if you can offer any insight to that, it's a tough question to answer, but it it actually isn't. It's a good friend of mine. I wanted to put that out there. So, well, and I'm glad you asked that. And honestly, to me, it's not a tough question to answer. We have discovered 
And the data has shown, their own data has shown, lockdowns did nothing to stop or slow the spread of COVID. Something that is this easily transmissible. Even the earlier variants, which spread more easily than the flu, forget the new variants that spread like chicken pox. Like, I mean, it's, it's, you are, you are going to get COVID. Like if you are going out and doing things, you're going to get COVID at some point. Uh, and you're going to be exposed to people who have COVID, uh, at some point. I, it, it's just, it's going to happen. Right. Like, I, so the yeah, lockdowns did not, yeah, I've had it at least twice. Uh, yeah. the lockdowns do not, did not stop or even slow the spread of COVID, especially as it began to mutate and become even more easily transmissible. The vaccines what, themselves. What country was it that didn't really lock down at all? Sweden. Sweden. So Sweden didn't didn't do much lockdowns. They issued a lot of guidance and suggestions. And I think they did a couple things like you couldn't have for a while for the first few months, you couldn't have uh, large gatherings over 5000 people or something like that. But for the most part, they had little to no restrictions. And they were criticized because initially it looked like their numbers were worse than everyone else's. Well, now if you look at it, their numbers are no different than anyone else's. It all normalized out. Everyone got COVID. It's the same thing. So the lockdowns did nothing to slow or spread the, the the stop or slow the spread of COVID. The vaccines did nothing, did little to nothing to stop or slow the spread of COVID. They have, it appears, at least stopped people, uh, reduced the number of people who were getting seriously ill and dying. That's fantastic, uh, especially important for older people, but mm-hmm. it did not stop or slow the spread of COVID. If you are in a nursing home, you are surrounded by people all day long who do not remain in that building. There are uh, your your day-to-day workers, the nurses and, and, and orderlies and people that work in there who go home and go out and party and go out to eat and go spend time with their family who do the same. And then they come in and it is possible they have COVID. And COVID now is increasingly asymptomatic. These newer uh, versions are more virulent and also have a higher likelihood of you never experiencing any symptoms whatsoever. Um, And uh, especially if you are younger and and healthier, which these orderlies are. So they're already being potentially exposed to COVID. Mm -hmm. The idea that it is okay for them to be exposed to orderlies and food service people and the Receptive reception staff and all of the people who work there, but not their loved ones, who for many of these people are the only thing holding them here. The only yeah. reason that these people who are in their 80s, 90s, hundreds, and often are basically in a form of hospice care, especially if they have like uh, you know a, a chronic illness, which many of them do, or they're suffering from dementia, they're suffering from you know uh, recurring illnesses or cancer or something like that. They're basically in a hospice care, in a hospice type of situation. They're basically being kept as comfortable as possible. And for many of them, the only thing keeping them here, the only reason that they still want to be here in the in the the life that they now live is the fact that they can see their loved ones. Yeah. And they're now being told, well, yeah, by Skype or Zoom, but not in person. And especially if you consider how many of these people have difficulty with electronics and all yeah. that stuff, there's absolutely no reason for it. I will say this. I think that the nursing homes themselves should be allowed to put the protocols that they think are most helpful in place. So maybe something like you got to test for COVID before you get let in the building or something like that. Or if you have a fever, you can't come in or whatever, which honestly would be good, not just for COVID, but for like the flu. Just in general. 
These people could die of the common cold or the flu or whatever. So I understand for that specific group of people, the nursing homes themselves deciding what, you know, risk factors they should allow, not allow that kind of stuff. I'm fine with that. The government has no business telling nursing homes how to operate nursing homes, especially when one of the first things that governments did when COVID first got here was force nursing homes to take COVID patients, which led to many people unnecessarily dying because they were shoving COVID patients in the buildings that were filled with the very most vulnerable people in America. So that's the last people I trust to tell nursing homes how to operate nursing homes. So that that's my thoughts on that. The government has no business telling people who do a thing how to do that thing because they don't they aren't providers of that thing. They're the government, which is usually a bunch of people uh, who, you know, politicians and bureaucrats and the crony corporations who own them. They're the absolute last people I trust for suggestions on what to order off of a menu at a restaurant, much less how I should operate my life. Uh, so uh, including on this, they they have no business doing it. Well, thank you for answering that. Dan, my buddy Daniel will appreciate that. Uh, Good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Uh, this will be one of my, this will be one of my longer episodes, which, which is, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, I haven't done a longer episode in a while. It's not, it's not Joe Rogan long though. So I'm good. It's not Joe Rogan long, but the thing is it's hard, you know, even when someone says, give me a short answer and it's like the COVID regime. Well, okay. COVID regime bad. Like it's, it's hard to give a short answer, but I'm glad that we had this time. I'm glad I could talk about it. And I'm glad we could talk about like mental health and addiction. Cause I don't get to talk about that a lot for obvious reasons. And uh, people want to talk about policy and stuff and I, I get it, but man, I find that some of the most fulfilling conversations I've had are about this, are about, you know, what a lot of us struggle through on a day-to-day basis. I think, you know, you can be as free as you want, but if you're not free in here, if you're all caught up in in your own uh, oppression of yourself, um, that's, that's that's an incredibly important thing to talk about. So I'm glad we had a chance to do that. So thank you, Colin, for having me on. I appreciate it, man. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Really appreciate that. It really helps me get the podcast out there and get some more listeners. So thank you for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself.